0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Love of Life podcast. Today, we have a special guest that doesn't require much of an introduction, but we're going to give it to him anyway. He's the pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. When he's not fire and brimstone from his own pulpit, he's literally burning things up himself with his very popular blog and May blog. He's written about as many books as P.G. Woodhouse. And in a day and time when a lot of pastors and teachers are going the way of Saruman, he's a rare Gandalf. He's Pastor Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson. Thank you, Pastor Wilson, for being with us today.
1: All right, thanks for having me. Any education apart from Jesus Christ is for us miseducation. And it produces not education nor an educated man, but a new race of barbarians who are today busily destroying their civilization humanistic education is the institutionalized love of death. Christian education because it serves him who says I am the way, the truth and the life is the love of life. This is the Love of
0: Life podcast. Conversations jesse and Courtney. all right very good we got it out (laughs) um so one of the things that you've said and i really like is that when christians are reviled they would go around a corner uh and and do a little jig and with the various pieces of tripe and vitriolic nonsense that's come out about you are you jigging all the time? And what does a Doug Wilson jig look like?
2: <laughs> well, you don't, want to ask, you don't want to ask about the second one. It doesn't look, it wouldn't be pretty. So we couldn't, so we can't get you to dance on the show. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> Very good. But, it, but that's basically our marching orders. Jesus said in that day, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Yes. So that's what we're told to do. That's right.
3: Awesome. Um, well, we wanted to get your input on why people can be offended at the idea that God is sovereign. Why is that kind of an offensive idea to us?
2: Because we want to be sovereign. So basically, when when someone spells out the sovereignty of God, what we see in that is a rival, and and we want no. That's what sin is. That's a mystery of lawlessness. Sin wants no rival, and and um, we want to be master of our um, we want to be master of our own fate. We want to be in control. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: um, I've heard you talk a lot also about like the creature creator divide. Can you give us a little bit of that breakdown?
2: Yeah. Uh, so behind the threat to autonomy that we kick at it really is a threat to our autonomy there's a misunderstanding that that drives it and that is if if we're all sitting in a room and we see and and we postulate that this room is all that is and then the biggest one of us let's call him zeus walks over and pushes somebody over it's his his exercise of will is displacing the other person's will it's like two billiard balls that can't occupy the same space. So, uh, and basically, if someone says, okay, here in this room, we're going we're gonna to call Zeus God, and we're going to attribute all the doctrines of Calvinism to him. Well, that's a real problem, because what you've got is a bully. You, and, and what people hear when they hear Calvinists talking, because they assume that we're in this big room, and God's the biggest one of us, and all the rest of us are little ones, that we're saying that God is a bully? Uh, Well, no, uh, because God's outside the room. God is transcendent. God is the creator. And there's an infinite gulf between the creator and the creature, which means that if if I'm looking at uh, Shakespeare's uh, play Hamlet, and Hamlet's you know, great to be or not to be speech. It makes no sense to say what percentage of that speech is Hamlet and what percentage is Shakespeare. Well, it's all Shakespeare and it's all Hamlet, right? It's not 90 10, it's not 99 1, it's 100 100. Shakespeare considered this way, Hamlet considered the other way. Now, A lot of people, when they hear that illustration, if they have trouble with God's sovereignty, will kick at the illustration. Uh, And before I defend the illustration, let me say that it's the same structural illustration as a potter and a pot, right? If someone says, yeah, but I'm a real being, not a two-dimensional literary figure, I would say, yeah, well, I'm a real being, not a clay pot either, (laughs) right? So um, you can't mount any objection to the illustration. That doesn't equally apply to what scripture says um so what but the thing that's interesting about the objection and this goes back to the threat to autonomy that i started with uh that is when people object to, the, to my illustration they always say but wilson your problem is that we are living breathing uh human beings with hopes dreams aspirations and hamlet is fictional All right That that's where you're Illustration falls apart. We're much greater than Hamlet. In other words, and nobody ever has. Come, nobody ever has come up to me when I use that illustration, saying, "Doug, your illustration falls apart. God is much greater than Shakespeare." Right. <laughs> but, yeah. the, but the the distance between God God and me is much much greater than the distance between Shakespeare and Hamlet, right? Uh, so uh, my my illustration does fail, admittedly. Because God is much greater than that illustration. So the question is, can God in his omnipotence create a world in which he is the sovereign God over every circumstance? And some of those circumstances include free choices by the individuals involved. And the biblical answer is yes. Um, So Jesus says sometimes in the same verse, uh, the son of man must go just as it has been determined but woe to that man through whom it comes. So you have personal responsibility on Judas's part and you have absolute sovereignty on on the Lord's part. That's good. Mm
3: -hmm. So what hope with that framework in mind, what hope is there um, for people when there's evil, when there's suffering, like how does the Calvinistic worldview help, help people understand that?
2: Yeah. Um, And I'm glad you brought the question of evil up because that might that hypothetical possibility might come true someday. (laughs) (laughs) Right, (laughs) our our great grandchildren might have to go through evil dark times, and so this this is what it does for the problem of evil. First, it creates the problem, and then it solves the problem. And if you if you go with the Uh, what the easy way of evading the problem by denying God's sovereignty, you wind up erasing the problem. So here, here, this is what I mean. Um, If I ask, why would an all sovereign, all good God have me go through some of the things I I've had to go through. Okay. Why, why is this happening to me? Well, I have at least the possibility that God knows what he's doing and that he's doing this, with intentionality and purpose because he wants to mold me and make me into uh, someone who's like Christ. Um, But if nobody's in control, then my suffering is pointless. (laughs) I mean, you break it down. There's either a point or there's no point. There either is meaning or there's no meaning. If there's meaning, then, then someone's doing it on purpose. If there's no meaning, Then I just got caught in the machinery and these things happen, right? So uh, if I'm, let's say I'm a pastor and I'm going to visit someone in the hospital after some horrendous accident, let's say, um, I can, I'm going to go there and I'm standing in the parking lot before I go into the hospital to talk to this guy. And I pray, I'm either praying with the understanding that there's a point to this somewhere or I've got to go in and comfort the guy in the conviction that it's pointless. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what, what kind of cold comfort is that? I mean, so if you, and this is, this is particularly stark when you're talking with atheists, the atheists, the atheists sort of exult in this sort of thing. They, they embrace the absurdity, not knowing that they're doing it. They say there's, they say there's the problem of evil because if God is omnipotent and God is good, then why is there evil? Mm. Well, I would say, if there is no God, if we adopt your solution, if there is no God, uh, then there's no such thing as evil. You've you've erased the problem by erasing the evil. There's, you know, mass starvation. Well, these things happen, man. You know, right. right? Uh, Imagine There's no heaven, no hell below us, above us us only sky, uh, above Bruckenwald, above, you know, uh, so either God is a master storyteller, and he's going to bring the best denouement out of the end, at the end of the story that we've ever heard, or the whole thing is absurd and pointless.
0: Mm -hmm. So even our tragedies are wrapped up in his sovereign blessing. Right. Even uh, the so- crazy events that part- that come upon us in our life, we, we still look at them as a sovereign God who moved and did
2: essentially did that, right? I the Lord do
0: all these things.
2: Right.
4: So-
2: exactly right. And I know as a Christian, there is no such thing as ultimate tragedy. The, the the Bible tells the history of the world, and the history of the world is a comedy. It ends with a wedding. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, So the B stories that many of us occupy um, can have some really hard things in it, but all things work together for good to those who love God. Mm -hmm. So that working together for good doesn't mean that it all works together for good in the B story. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: It all works together for good in the A story. And we will all be satisfied when we come to that point. We will all say, that's why that, that makes sense. That clicks. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
0: Talk to us a little bit about the difference between Deuteronomic blessings and the health and wealth gospel, because a lot of us, (laughs) a lot of us grew up with an anti health and wealth gospel. And then when we started hearing about the Deuteronomic blessings, they can be almost misconstrued, but there is a chasm. There's a huge difference between the two. Correct?
2: Yeah. Uh, Yes. Um, and, it's, and the chasm, the difference between the two, the chasm shows up in perhaps an unexpected place, but there is a chasm between the two. A number of years ago, if you don't mind my telling a little story, okay. a number of years ago, I, I woke up in the middle of the night, I forget why, couldn't get back to sleep. And so I got, I got up and turned on the television to see what was going on in the middle of the night. And as a result of channel surfing, I got a good 10 or 15 minutes of a health and wealth guy. You know, <laughs> the best. <laughs> the best. He, he, had, he had the prime health and wealth slot in the middle of two in the morning. Um, and, and he was going to town, uh, preaching his health and wealth uh, gospel. And one of the things that struck me was he had a lot of verses. right? That, uh, he was able to quote many passages. Now, I think that the problem with the health and wealth um, approach is that it's too simple and they take those verses. There are many verses, but they put them in the wrong context. It's like they've got a beautiful picture, but they put the wrong frame on it and hung it on the wrong wall. Um, And this is what I mean. When I'm talking about health and wealth, I go to Hebrews 11 and it tells us we have that great hall of fame of all those people who, by faith, accomplished these different things. And then near the end, it has sort of a barrage of the people that uh, did these things and were uh, who did mighty things by means of their faith. And the list starts out in, in very much a health and wealth vein. Uh, there were people by their faith who conquered kingdoms, put armies to flight, Saw their dead uh, raised to life, life again. You know, and you go, whoa. You know, you know, preach it. And then the list con- <laughs> the, the list continues on. Were sawn in two. Were uh, lived their lives in caves, um, of whom the world was not worthy. Um, refused to, re- you know. Uh, and you say, oh, these these people have real hardships. Okay, in this world, Does that makes sense. Uh, so basically if someone says if I get some gloomy dark amillennialist guy and he says look man it's all suffering all the time I would say well what about the conquering kingdoms armies to flight what about the people who by faith achieved great um, things in this life and then if I'm talking to a health and wealth guy and he says, it's all blessings all the time, I'd say, well, what about Isaiah? Son and two? It was probably Isaiah, son and two by um, uh, according to uh, ancient extra scriptural tradition. Uh, wh- what about Jeremiah? What about Isaiah? What about these men who suffered greatly for the kingdom and who didn't see success, worldly success in their lifetimes? Now, with that, so that, that, um, with that framework, I go to the book of Proverbs, right? Well, I go to Proverbs and Deuteronomy. Proverbs gives me things that are generally true. Proverbs are proverbial. So when, when we're told that a lazy bum is going to have a garden full of weeds and not much to eat in the winter, that is generally true okay and it's not a it's not a truth like all triangles have three sides so all triangles have three sides is a geometric truth and it's true by definition all the time Uh, but a little sleep a little slumber a little folding of the hands to rest and sometimes you win the lottery (laughs) and you read a story about this guy who won the lottery but but that that's That's a um, man bites dog story. It's an oddity, right? Because what usually happens is poverty. What usually happens when people are meth heads or coke addicts or alcoholics or lazy, um, God's not mocked, and a man generally, usually reaps what he sows. Okay. Now, the Deuteronomic blessings are the blessings which you receive from the hand of God, knowing that it's not automatically your birthright, right? but God bestows them on you out of his grace for the sake of Jesus Christ, because you've been walking in accordance with his covenant. And if you lose them, it's like Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, so I, what I like to do is illustrate, uh, your: if all your worldly possessions are like this, Uh, thing and i hold them uh before the lord like this then the lord can give the lord can take away and bless me the name of the lord now if i hold all my possessions like this the lord can still take it away but now i've got broken fingers (laughs) right right (laughs) that's
3: good um, what are some of the child rearing practices, trainings, teachings that you've seen bear the most fruit through the years and any age from tiny toddler to school age kids to teenagers?
2: Yeah. So I'm going to start with, um, I, will, I want to make a distinction between principles and methods. Um, methods are important and we have to employ them at some point. You have to figure out what you're going to do. So I'm not saying that methods are optional, but I think we should sometimes parents, especially parents who are eager to bring up children who, um, you know, who don't go to the penitentiary and who love Jesus, and, um, par- some, parents like that oftentimes gravitate to quick fix methods, um, insert tab A into slot B, uh, sorts of things, and I think one of the first things you must do is understand and master the principles and then um, select what method you're going to, to adopt. So uh, the method would be uh, a methodological question would be, how old, how old should a child be before you uh, spank them? Or how old do they, uh, how, how, what age should they be when you stop spanking them? Th- th- those are methodological questions the principle that I would urge parents to think about is a mom and a dad should prioritize being in fellowship. All right. So the, the issue is not, did you do this or that thing? The issue is, are we in fellowship? Are, are we good? Can we sit down at a meal together, laugh together, tell a story? Is there a barrier between us? So you're, you're prioritizing fellowship, and you are wanting to deal with any sin that uh, erects a barrier between anyone in the family. Uh, so you want to make sure that when you're disciplining, you're disciplining in order to remove a barrier, uh, remove the barrier to fellowship, instead of just arbitrarily handling, handing down consequences for you did this, I'm going to do that. Uh, you should always be thinking about what the outcome uh, needs to be what and the outcome you, you should want is a family that can eat together pray together laugh together have a good time together and that's not going to happen unless you're in fellowship unless you're pursuing that so um the, the, does that make sense is that a yeah, that's- yeah. okay so um what you're what you're driving for when, when a child uh, is got the sulks or bad attitude or whatever, um, you you say, look, uh, that's disruptive to the fellowship of the family. You need to um, correct your demeanor, and this comes down to you you discipline and correct and teach for attitudes, not just behavior, and you start governing. You have to discipline for your own attitude. If you're going to discipline for attitudes in, in the kids, then you've got to start with your own attitudes. So here's a second principle in Galatians six one. It says, "If any brother is overtaken in a trespass, like your two year old toddler, you who are spirit, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted." Okay, now just to set this up let's say uh let's say you've got a coffee table with a vase of flowers on it and let's say your kid is just starting to explore and they just started to stand up and they they navigate over to the coffee table and they start playing with the vase okay now when Pa- parents have a temptation of thinking that I am dealing with the vase situation and I'm teaching my child by freaking out. I, you know, I, I freak out. I come in, swat their hand, yell at them a little bit. And I think that I'm teaching them vase, proper vase protocols. <laughs> okay, <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm actually teaching them is how to freak out when things aren't going your way. Mm-hmm. because uh because they're going to imitate you freaking out more quickly than they're going to imitate the fact that you stay away from the vase right mm-hmm. um because that's the that's the thing that's that's the thing that's on fire so when i correct uh when i correct a child i i want it to be calm judicious measured um because paul says in galatians you who are spiritual Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, what that means is if I'm motivated to discipline my children, emotionally motivated, I'm probably not qualified. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And when I'm qualified, I'm spiritual to discipline them. I'm probably not motivated. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Because I'm not irritated. I'm not annoyed. I'm not bothered. So I'll just keep reading my book yeah okay and as soon as i'm annoyed and i'm motivated to put my book down and go deal with you know little little tommy um i'm probably out of fellowship myself and so i'm not going to be a good guide or leader on how to lead him back into fellowship because i'm out of fellowship right um so that and that goes back to the first principle of wanting uh wanting the the priority in the family to always be walk with God, stay in fellowship, stay in the joy of the Lord. That's good. So what do you do? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of prayer. Yeah, A lot of prayer. Spank them every every 10 minutes.
0: (laughs) Is there a cutoff age when you stop spanking? Obviously there is. Is there? Yeah. Is it based more on maturity than it actually is? Uh, age I, would,
2: I, would say, I would say, um, um, I'll, this is all ballpark, but uh, our kids are long grown and everything, but I would estimate that 90% of the spankings that they got were when they were preschool.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: Okay. Um, and then because you're establishing your authority, um, and that's when they're they're learning the ropes and learning everything. There were a handful of spankings through the grade school years, and I would say, uh, out of grade school, uh, it should be rare to non-existent. Yeah. Okay. And and there's a there's an important principle that many parents uh, miss, and that is, I th- I think that parents ought to be a lot stricter when the kids are younger. And as the kids are getting older, you should be removing restrictions, not putting them on what, what many parents do is when, when the kid is a preschooler and sin is either relatively cute or, or not doing a lot of damage, you know, they have their fit and then they sleep it off and, you know, no blood, no foul kind of assumption. Well, you, it's just, you can't see the bleeding. It's internal bleeding. Um, So what you want to do is be really strict when the kids are little. And then as they're, you know, when they're 18, when they're 18 and join the Navy and they're off in the Philippines, they need to, they're not going to be dealing with your house rules anymore. So you need, by the time they leave to do that, you need all the house standards and God's rules. You need them to have been internalized by that point. And so you have to prepare for the internalization and you have to observe that. And I would say you need to observe and measure and check as the kids are going through their teenage years. So, for example, my wife and I were very strict with our kids, uh, you know, when they were littles. And when they would go to a friend's birthday party and they were going to be showing a movie at the birthday party, we would, you know, Christian families, all the kids are Christians, everybody's going to heaven. Um, but we said, what movie, (laughs) Mm -hmm. what movie, or you might have to come home early or we'll have, we may pick you up because we, we were just stricter than a lot of the other families that our kids went to school with in a Christian school, many of them in the same church, you know, similar standards, but we were stricter. But then as the kids got older, uh, one of the things we did, for example, I had a talk with, um. Uh, our standard for our household was when the kids were 16, they could, they didn't have to check with us. They could go to any movie they wanted. That was that was back in the day when people used to go to movies.
4: Right, yeah. Long, long time ago.
2: <laughs> long time ago. You've read about it in the book. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> so we, we said, look, we've taught you the standards and we believe you've internalized the standards. We trust you to make the decisions. Well, th- it was a weird thing because my kids were, Uh, being passed in the opposite direction by many of their friends who'd grown up with much looser standards. And then when the fruit of that started to become apparent, the parents started to panic and started to clamp down. Right. Oh, oh, no, no, nothing doing. You can't go see that awful movie. Um, And uh, our oldest daughter, Becca, one time was in a conversation with her friends who said, oh, my parents would kill me if I went and saw that movie. And Becca was able to say, um, well, my My parents said, "I, you know, they've left it up to me. I could go see it if I wanted." What really, really, your parents? (laughs) And well, and but the but the catch was, she didn't want to, Mm. right? And these other parents were panicking because their kids wanted to. (laughs) And and so you basically you're looking for the internalization of the standard. So one of my bylines is: your job is not to get your kids to conform to the standard. Your job is to get your kids to love the standard.
4: Mm.
0: That's good.
3: Yeah, it's beautiful.
0: That's good. Let's, uh, let's switch to eschatology just uh, for a little bit. Uh, we, would, right. we would be remiss if we didn't talk to you about eschatology. Um, okay. Why is eschatology so important? Can you tell us? Because, because it's fun. If you're post mill, because no. if you're not post mill, it's not so much fun right
2: now. Right. Yeah. If you're not post mill, it's no fun at all. And so, yeah. Yeah. come on over. It's it's fun. Um, eschatology is important because if you don't have a game plan, you're not going to be able to play the game. Right. Yep. If you if if you think that while God has God had us come out on stint. To, to stand around on this football field, I'm not sure what's going on exactly. I'm not sure what we're supposed to do. Um, well, what are you gonna? What are you gonna do? Well, if you're if you're post post-mill- millennial, then human history has a telos. It has a point. It has something for us to accomplish. Now, every every Christian, mill pre mill post mill, every Christian believes that eternity has a point that that we all believe everybody's every christian is optimistic in that sense heaven has a point the resurrection has a point the great white throne judgment has a point but post-millennialists are those who say human history has a point yes all right next tuesday has a point um what what i do building this institution or this this school or writing this book or um, being involved, th- this, um, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, is uh, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So the things that we do here and now, as R.C. Sproul used to say, right now counts forever. And it doesn't just count forever in the forever, it counts now. It, it counts in, hi- it, 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 it matters historically. All right? So, um, if you believe that everything is just wandering around aimlessly or if you believe that everything is going from bad to worse, then you're going to be, I don't know if you've ever played on an athletic team where um, everybody in the team decided, went into the game, deciding already that we were going to lose already. Um, Well, lo and behold, when you, when you go into a game, believing you're going to lose, there's such a thing as a self-fulfilling prophecy. And there are many Christians who are losing when, by rights, we ought not to be. How, how, can this, how can this stuff that's currently going on in America right now be going on with as many millions of evangelical Christians as we have? You know, um, if every evangelical Christian was a Marxist, <laughs> oh, what would be happening if every evangelical Christian was a jihadist? What would be happening if yeah. every even, you know, golly, way more than it's happening now? So, we have adopted sort of a, a self defeating eschatology that mm-hmm. says, Okay, everything's falling apart, we're right on schedule. <laughs>
0: right, <laughs> yeah, come, Lord Jesus, right.
2: come today, right. preferably, right? Right, and so. Uh, we, we view this world, uh, the, the activity of the kingdom of God in this world, as God's Vietnam. Yeah. And, you know, he got, God got himself somehow embroiled in a land war in Asia. And, and we're, we're waiting for the helicoptering out of Saigon, which is the, which is the uh, rapture. So, um, you know, it's, but that, if that's what we think is going to happen. Then that's what's going. To, that we're going to start feeding into that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, what power does Satan have now? This is a topic among Christians of all eschatological persuasions. But what 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 power does he actually have at this moment?
2: I think he has the power of his lies. Okay. Okay. And even those lies are limited. So, um, so I think. Uh, his binding in Revelation 20, when he's bound in the bottomless pit. I believe that he's bound with regard to his ability to deceive the nations. So I think he still has the power to deceive, but I don't think he has the power to deceive the way he had it in the Old Testament era. So when you look at the Old Testament, the cosmology is basically the Babylonian Empire, and behind Babylon were principalities and powers. Mm-hmm. Okay, Uh, behind the Persian Empire were principalities and powers
4: Mm -hmm. behind
2: behind Rome were were principalities and powers. So when Daniel's praying and he doesn't he gets his answer three weeks late and the angel shows up and says, I would have been here sooner. But I got in a fight with the prince of Persia on the on the way and I was delayed. So you have you have this um, very strange uh, setup in the Old Testament. Where God is sovereign over all things.
4: Mm-hmm. Then
2: you have mediatorial princes, many of whom were fallen, cor- corrupt, evil, like, like the devil. And then you had the empires of men underneath that. Okay, That was the basic structure of the Old Testament cosmology. God is always sovereign, mediatorial princes, plural, many of whom are corrupt and fallen. And then the empires of men. So, But it, Israel was one of the nations of men. And the archangel Michael is a mediatorial uh, prince over Israel. What you have in the New Testament is a cosmological revolution where God becomes man. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he um, is buried. He rises again from the dead. And he, is, he ascends into heaven what happened what's what's happening there is and and we are united with Christ in by faith and in so we're united with him so the cosmo the cosmology now is god is sovereign over all then next is man in Christ right and then under under that would be uh, angels principalities and powers there's been a cosmological revolution now and this is all going back to your question about what Satan can do. In the old days, Satan could uh, could basically tie the emp- the empires of the world up and knots. That was one of the temptations he offered. He offered the emp- all the kingdoms of the world and their glory to Jesus in the temptation. Here, these are yours. Just bow down and worship me, and I'll give them to you. Um, so they were his to give. Jesus said no not because he didn't want those empires, but because he didn't want them as a gift. So uh, because he says explicitly, I came to bind the strong man. I I came down to uh, plunder him. And in Luke, it says, it's not just uh, bind the strong man and take his stuff. It's bind the strong man and take his panoply, take his armor, right? So Jesus had every intention of defeating the devil. That means the devil has been largely disarmed from his previous power to sort of orchestrate the nations of men, and, and there will never be another Babylon and another Persia, that sort of thing, and attempts to, to rebuild ancient pagan empires like the Third Reich come crashing down after a few years. That, that can't happen in the new, in the new era.
0: Okay. So let me ask you this question. This comes from a friend. I'm literally going to ask you a question for a friend um, who sent this to me. And it's actually based on Revelation 20, 7 through 10. And the question is, after the Enlightenment era, we see a very specific turn against God's law in every facet of society during the industrial revolutions. Now, the fourth industrial revolution is upon us in the form of transhumanism, technologies that are physically harmful to human life, such as 5G, genocidal shots, abortion, through which there is an undeniable return to ancient Canaanite religions involving abortion as child sacrifice, sex magic as entertainment, etc. We know from the scripture that Satan's dominion in the earthly realm will return in order to deceive the nations. Is it possible that we are in that time period now and is scientism not a global religion of Satan brought on by satanic ritual and media and entertainment that every nation has been deceived into following as a result?
2: Right. So I would say, uh, Amen to almost everything in that list. In terms of intention, it is very clear that the globalists, the you know the the Great Reset people, would like nothing more than to have this uh, all come true. I, and I think that that's uh, very a very accurate description of their intention. I think that it's all going to do a major face plant. I don't think it's going to be successful. Right. Um, so I, but I think that that's what they're going for. They're shooting the moon. They're going for it. That's, that's okay. very true.
0: So do you think this possibly though, could be this sort of what they call little season where Satan is, he, he essentially, he has power to deceive the nations once again for a short time. Right. Does that fit in I, with the post-mill eschatology? Or not. Yeah, it
2: it could fit it could fit in structurally, okay. Um, but not so. I don't think it's a contradiction to post mill eschatology, because I think something like this will happen. I but I believe that the uh, Christianization of the world, I, I believe, will be much more advanced when that little season happens.
4: Okay.
2: Okay. Um, so I think we would have been farther down the Christianization road before it happens. But that's just a judgment call. So, a number of post millennialists believe that there will be a little season where Satan is let loose and will have his old um, abilities back for a very short time,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and they believe that will happen. So, yeah, structurally, it could be happening now. I just don't think so. Okay. And
0: biblically, are you? Would you cite Isaiah? I think it's sixty-five. And other passages that essentially talk about how the nations are going to stream to the mountain of God before that time. Right. So chronologically, right. you take that as the nation will be or the world will be Christianized. There will right. be a one world religion and it will be Christianity. And right. then Satan will be sort of let out for a time and a season. Is that right? Your understanding? Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So kind of, you mentioned the great reset. Um, So Klaus Schwab says uh, the world economic forum, executive chairman, everyone, most people have heard, he says by 2030, you'll own nothing and be happy. By 2030, Doug Wilson says, what is that? Is is this dismal dystopian point of view? You believe it's going to face plant?
2: Yeah. Yeah, Because one of two things is going to happen either. The whole thing's going to come a cropper and everybody knows that what klaus um said didn't happen or uh, Klaus will come to me and said see 2030 you don't know nothing uh and <laughs> i'd say yes sir you don't you see me i don't got nothing <laughs> <laughs> but uh i would have stuff okay right in other words don't comply don't cooperate don't Do you think Uh, the world
0: will cooperate? I mean, we saw the test run, if you will, of the last two years of our lives. A lot of people, including uh, evangelicals, they they hook line sinker believed in the nonsense. You know, that's and that's what makes you and several other pastors different than lots of other pastors that have gone in a different way. It's kind of you know, it's kind of been quite revealing. Right.
2: So I think this um, let's divide. Um, everything into three camps, not two, okay? Okay. So I do think that the last two years were a beta test for this whole thing, okay? So they, you know, how much can we get away with? Uh, How long will people put up with being locked down? What are they gonna, uh, what are they gonna say? What are they gonna do? And there were an awful lot of people who complied. That's one category. Then there were, among the people who didn't comply, there were the people who didn't comply because refusal to comply was the right thing to do, but they had no expectation of winning.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, uh, I'm I'm in this Alamo situation, and I'm going to go down. I'm going to go down fighting because it's the right thing to do. Okay, I am not complying, but I think that they're losing. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not complying, but I, I don't think I don't think they're gonna be uh, successful. And it's sort of like the like the Russian invasion of Ukraine is like a parable of this. Everybody everybody assumed that if Russia invaded en masse, they'd take the whole thing in three days. Well, low. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. It's, it's it's not it's not happening. And so if you look at the most compliant population in the, uh, in the world, I think it would have to be the Canadians. And <laughs> and then they produce, then all of a sudden these truckers come from nowhere. Um, oh, wait, 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 what, you know, what, <laughs> what's happening? Well, yeah. there, there's a thing, um, uh, a thing that's called a preference cascade where What happened when they did this beta test and they said, okay, everybody put on a mask, lock down, can't go to work. Everybody, a bunch of people gave them the benefit of that for a few weeks and figured out what was going on and then went into non-compliance. But a lot of people said, okay, I guess they've got our best interests in mind and they went along and went along and went along. Well, uh, what a preference cascade is, is one person has the subversive thought you know, this is just plain ridiculous, but I'm probably crazy. I'm probably, I'm probably the only one who thinks this. And then they look across the office and catch somebody's eye. And all of a sudden they know, well, he thinks it's crazy too. <laughs> and he think and, and then the person who knows that everybody thinks it's crazy.
4: Yeah.
2: Well, um, and then when they all stand up all at once, well, okay. All of a sudden it is crazy. And and we've discovered that it took two years to get there.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but we we now have politicians successfully riding the crest of popular resistance to this sort of thing.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So the, the Democrats dropped the masking and the lockdown mandates right before the State of the Union, like a hot rock, because I think they understood... I think they understand that the midterms are going to be a bloodbath for them. And if that's the case, and if it's enough of a bloodbath, I think that that might be the beginning of a concerted rebellion against all of this.
0: Okay. So you are expecting a that hideous strength kind of moment with Merlin and sort of the Tower of Babel in scene that the plans of the wicked, even these plans will not come to fruition
2: ultimately. That's right. So I'm, when, when I tell you, you know, the joke is, Hey, would somebody send me their conspiracy theory? I'm running out. All of mine are coming true. (laughs) Right. Right. So when, when people say, well, they're up to this and they're up to that and they're up to the other thing. I really do believe that these people are bad actors and I believe that they're, um, The libido dominandi, the lust for dominance, is um, unparalleled. I think think this is a Tower of Babel moment. But I think there are still many people who find Zuckerberg's meta world just plain creepy. You're not going to enter the metaverse?
0: No. (laughs) Good. Good. (laughs) Very good. Do you have any follow-up to that?
3: No, that's
0: great. Okay, all right. So, uh, Jordan Peterson, can we expect him on season four of Man
2: Rampant? Oh, he'd be welcome anytime. <laughs> he'd be welcome anytime. But uh, uh, we're still comparatively small fry. So, um, okay. uh, so basically, um, he uh, and I think the Lord was very kind of the Lord gave him a huge platform as a result of his defiance of the university of Toronto's draconian requirements on pronouns. Yep. And, uh, and he is a, he is a leader in the world of resistance and I would love to talk to him sometime. And, and, and maybe the Lord will give, give that opportunity, but yeah. we're still, we're, we're still chump change.
0: Well, I don't know about that, but yes, that would be a great opportunity. And so similarly, when are you going on the Joe Rogan podcast? Have your people <laughs> talked to his people cuz we're waiting.
2: And, uh, same deal, same deal. Same so deal. he's the he's he's the biggest podcast in the world. Right. And um but uh, he he really does in, in terms of the faith, he really does need to have some intelligent Christians on. Exactly. Um,
0: exactly. You
2: know, he, he, he he's done he's done good work in certain areas, but he's just he's um he's missing it when it comes to the things of God.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he is. He's definitely got some great common sense. um, But then he misses it by a landslide. And so I was happy to see your video of him, your um, respond video. I don't know viral, but it's definitely got quite a bit of views and that's great. Maybe, maybe that will get his attention and he'll be like, who is this guy? I need to have him on.
2: Yeah. I, in my Twitter feed, people periodically, Tweet at Ben Shapiro, Joe Rogan, and um, and whatever the first one. uh, Yeah, that was those are the two generally. Yeah,
3: awesome. Um, What book of yours did you most enjoy writing?
2: Oh, (laughs) most enjoy? (laughs) Yes. Okay, so there are different categories. Um, Books that I think did the most good. Books I think I enjoyed. I enjoyed writer. I I would say ride Sally ride was probably the most fun. (laughs) Was was the most fun to write.
3: Okay. Awesome. What book did the most good?
2: Okay. I think, uh, reforming marriage. That That's was the true. first
3: book I ever read by you. It was great. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, I th- I th- yeah.
3: Okay. What book do you hope that your great, great, great grandkids read that you wrote?
2: Okay. The, um, I'd like, I'd like one that I'd like them to read one that, uh, uh is, that I would consider either the best that I've done or the among the best. And I would say either Wordsmithy or mere fundamentalism. So if you were to a- ask me what the best book I've done, where, I've, where I'm most pleased with the structure and the composite, you know, how it all came together, it'd probably be mere fundamentalism. And, and a close second would probably be Wordsmithy. So those, so, because I want my great grandchildren to think that I knew how to write. I would, I would, I would, uh, I'd give them the good ones. Okay,
3: perfect. I like it.
0: Very good. Um, you can punt on this question, but I did want to ask you vasectomies. Yes, no, why? Do you have an opinion? I've, you know, I've listened to a lot of your videos over the years. Maybe you talk about it somewhere, but I have yet to hear your opinion or thought on vasectomies or birth control or any of that.
2: Okay, so on my blog, I do have a, uh, there's a post I did that sort of uh, 11 theses on birth control. So I've there's, I think that's the name of it, 11 theses on birth control. Okay. The The thing that I, I would be uh, cautious, basically uh, cautious about, when I'm talking to a young couple about uh, these things, the Bible doesn't say anything explicitly about birth control as such. So I don't either. I don't want to either. But the Bible does say a lot of explicit things about the uh, the, the blessing of fruitfulness. Uh, children are a blessing. Um, and so if I'm talking to, a, let's say, a newlywed couple and they come in for some pastoral advice and one of the things they ask about is birth control, um, I would say, well, you have to understand that abortifacients are out um, or things that you can reasonably expect to be Abortive fashion; those should be excluded. Barrier uh, barrier methods are uh, lawful, depending on what your intention is. So, if your in, intention is, well, we want to have one point two children uh, so that we can pursue our dreams and have something to put into the daycare center, then then I would say you're messed up. But it, it's you're and you're using birth control as the means of pursuing your messed upness, Um, But birth control is the least of your problems. It's your attitude toward kids that that is the the problem. Um, But if I had another couple that said, uh, we're practicing birth control because the doctor told us that if I don't, uh, if the wife here doesn't, isn't, uh, if we don't space the kids out, uh, she's gonna have to have a hysterectomy after three kids.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. You know, something like that. So we're we're pacing ourselves because we would like to have seven or eight kids and we're, we're doing our best to get to that point. Then whatever else I say to them, their attitude toward children is fine. They're 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 wanting to receive children as a blessing from the Lord. So I would say, OK, just be careful uh, of then the questions become prudential questions. And that leads to a vasectomy. Let, let's, say, let's say you have a couple that have eight kids already, and they're thinking of the husband getting a vasectomy. Okay? Uh, when they do that, if, if, if uh, that were being done when you had two children, I would say, look, that's kind of a drastic, hard-to-reverse measure. Uh, are you sure you want to sure do that? Because, basically, I think the problem there would be rashness, being rash. Um, if you have a, a bunch of kids and you think, you know, it's going to be a full stretch to pay tuition for all of these kids in the Christian school to feed them all, I think I can do this. But I'm, I think I would start failing as a father if, if we went further, then I, I would say, okay, just make sure you read all the fine print. Etc. So that's, that's a rough cut take, but if you want a deta- uh, detailed um, point by point thing, 11 theses on birth control. Awesome. Very good.
3: Uh, do you have a favorite topic of debate?
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> um, Hato baptism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes slavery (laughs) (laughs) coming from you that's really funny (laughs) Um, no i would i would basically i probably enjoy debating atheists the most yeah because it's about something that really matters the the gospel is you basically you're you're um debating something that all christians agree on uh and it's a, it's a very clear cut, um, sort of, sort of thing. Uh, so I, I enjoyed debates about the gospel and about the existence of God, um, uh, probably the most.
3: Awesome. Um, how did you and Nancy meet?
2: Ah, So, um, we're hitting what it was happened now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what, what happened? I was in the Navy, I was in the submarine service and, um, and so I was off on the East Coast and my parents lived here in Moscow. And I was talking on the phone one time with my mom and she said, well, Doug, I don't care what kind of girl you bring home as long as it's a girl like Nancy Greensides. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I thought, huh. So I filed that away, basically filed that away. And uh, when I came home on leave, with a, I had a year left in the Navy. I, I came home on leave, and I met uh, Nancy at my parents' house. And uh, also, incidentally, coming up on four years ago, my wife and I moved in with my my elderly dad. He's 94. And uh, we moved in with him and our, our, his caregivers and, and so on. Uh, and um, a little while ago, it struck Nancy and me that we were sitting in the living room, and we struck us this is the room we met in. You know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, <That's> awesome. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I remember that. I remember you. So uh, so w- what happened was Nancy had uh, graduated uh, the previous um, uh, year and had gotten a job uh, working in the Christian bookstore that my dad operated in Moscow. And she drove down from Coeur d'Alene, just to confirm that she had the job that was coming up, just to shore everything up. And I was home on leave and we met there at my parents' house. So I had a year left in the Navy and I was, and, and my mom had already said this to me about Nancy Greenside. So I, there I met her, really liked her. We hit it off. And so she was coming on staff with a Christian ministry that my dad was operating. And so I was a single sailor and I was supporting three other Christian workers. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll add Nancy to the list. She's coming on staff. She needs support. So I would then had an excuse to write her, you know, with a, with a monthly check. And so we corresponded for that last uh, year and she came on staff with my, with my dad's ministry and we had corresponded for a year and then, um, when I got out of the Navy the following year, I was in hot pursuit.
3: Awesome. So is it fair to say you liked her first? Yes. Okay. Entirely.
2: Yeah. Entirely fair. Okay. So when, when I proposed, it caught her flat footed. Yes.
3: <laughs> but she said yes. So, yeah, but also. she,
2: yeah, she said yes after three days. <laughs>
3: three days. Oh man. And she kept me
2: twisting in the wind for three days. Wow. Well, because. Because I I've been thinking about it for a long time, and she had to go from a standing start. You know. Oh, uh, uh, okay.
3: <laughs> nice.
0: Very good. All right. Last question: Pipes or cigars?
2: Um, c- uh, uh, cigars. Cigar. So I've yeah I've got a pipe, but I I've not smoked it enough to be any good at it. Okay. Um, you know it's just. It, smoking a pipe takes talent and work and you have to have a place to do it. And, you know, it's like, um, and North Idaho weather is not always conducive to doing it outside. You know, that's sort. Of, uh, yeah. So, um, so basically I'm, but I'm not a, uh, I'm not an avid smoker. I smoke a, an occasional cigar.
0: Okay. Very good. And do you have a favorite or just no. cigar? No,
2: no, no. Just, I, so I'm I'm basically a, uh, um I'm not I don't I think I might I might have like ten taste buds total. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can tell if something's hot or cold. Um,
0: <laughs> so as far and, as cuisine, you don't really have much of a smorgasbord. Yeah, you don't really have right. too much variety. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm,
2: well, I I have a lot of variety, but I think some things are lost on me
0: okay
4: right?
2: so so i'm not the, i'm not the kind of person that you could um if basically if a, a trained sommelier who's got 10,000 taste buds on his tongue you know can take a sip of wine blindfolded and tell you what country what vineyard what year you know because he's got it dialed in and you know, it's the sort of thing where I, I could probably tell you if it was red wine or red, white wine. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> Very good. Well, Pastor Wilson, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for coming on our show.
2: Thank yeah. you. Pleasure to be with you.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Love of Life podcast, conversations with Jesse and Courtney.
1: It is our duty through our school to create a new one, a God-centered one. We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death.